this hour, it's Decision 2022, a candidate conversation. Joining us is Republican challenger for Utah's 2nd District House seat, Aaron Ryder. Our hosts are Boyd Matheson and Maria Chaleos on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Well, welcome to our special coverage here on KSL News Radio. I'm Boyd Matheson, very pleased to be joined in studio by Maria Chaleos. And in our candidate conversation for the 2nd Congressional District, we're really pleased to have Aaron Ryder joining us in studio. We did invite the other participants uh, that uh, declined, and so uh, we're pleased to have Aaron here for a, a conversation, a crucial conversation, leading into the June 28th primary. And uh, so, one, thanks for joining us today, Aaron. Yeah, well, thank, thank you, you for having me. Really excited to it's be great here. great to have you here. Yeah. Well, we're going to jump right into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's a, a lot of challenges, a lot of things happening in our nation's capital. Uh, many have uh, worried and wondered about the state of both political parties and the state of our, our politics and our, our dialogue in the country. And I'm actually going to play a little bit of sound uh, for you, Aaron, from uh, Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska. He spoke at the Reagan Library last weekend and uh, talked about this performative politics and how it's ruining our dialogue and then uh, we'll have you give us a little bit of a response to that and how you'll impact that as a member of congress right now we have a government of the weirdos by the weirdos and for the weirdos (laughs) most real people are tuning out regrettably but understandably and they're letting the very online very angry dominate our politics our politicians now consistently act like jack wagons and they do it for a reason It's because they're primarily just performing for other jack wagons. Echo chamber politicians drinking their own bathwater isn't entirely new, of course. But what is new, and something is new here, is the instant feedback loop of social media. Politicians increasingly addict themselves to likes and retweets. And they act and they think, but mostly they just feel, like social media is where real life happens. Happily... They're very, very wrong. Yes, there's lots of grandstanding going on, but the grandstands are really small and they're mostly empty. Political Twitter isn't real. Only 22% of Americans use it, and more than half of the one-fifth of Americans who use Twitter never follow politics on it. The vast majority of traffic on Twitter is driven by well under 2% of the American public. And yet politicians, again, left and right, are barely distinguishable in seeking to cater to this tiny minority and the algorithms that drive their addicted engagement. So Aaron, as as you think about joining this great band of souls in our nation's capital, what would you do different as a member of Congress uh, to help change the way we're having dialogue in the public square? Yeah, well, that was quite a... uh quote <laughs> um, from from Senator Sass. I, I mean, look, here's the thing, right? This is part of why I'm running, because we are at a point right now in this country where no one is satisfied with politics. I have yet to encounter a single person who's actually happy with politics. If you know of anyone, please let me know, because they will be an anomaly. And when everybody's upset, that's usually when change happens, right? Because we recognize that we can't keep going down the path we're going down. And right now, you know, on the Republican side especially, since that's, you know, where I'm focused... I'm looking at, you know, we've got a disconnect between the messaging that we're putting out there and the values that we espouse as conservatives, and we're losing voters as a result. We're losing particularly young Americans, millennials and Gen Z are voting, are registering as independents at much higher rates than they ever have before. And those two blocks together 
as soon as they start showing up en masse to vote, it could dramatically change the future of American politics just because of the dynamics of those two demographic groups. And I'm a millennial, so I speak from personal experience here. Um, so but, move that microphone just a little bit closer to you. Then we'll yeah. be able to hear you a little bit better. Okay, sure. Perfect. Is that better? Yes. Go ahead. Um, so here, you know, here we are, and I, I think that Senator Sass is right. We are dealing with politics of fear right now. So much of our policymaking is based on fear, and we see that at so many levels of government where we're reacting to things, right? We're reacting and we're entrenching behind our party lines, and we are unwilling to engage with the other side or with people who think differently from us. That's a huge, huge problem. We're also voting out of protest. If you think about the last few elections that we've had, you know, 2016 in many ways was a vote against Hillary. It wasn't necessarily even a vote for Trump it was a vote against Hillary. 2020 was a vote against Trump. And who knows what 2024 will be, et cetera, right? And that's a problem. If we're voting against people as opposed to voting for people, we're having a disconnect between the vision of the party, the people that are out there, and the values that we're actually promoting. So I think he's, he's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, so me looking into this, I'm looking at, okay, where are we now and where do we need to get? The future of the party is on the line and the future of the country is on the line. We have to have vision. We have to have a vision in this party. We need to be able to go out there and show that conservatives have ideas and that we're capable of really, really good things rather than just saying no to whatever the Democrats come up with. That doesn't work. So my goal is to go into Congress and to say, okay, here we are. We've got some real issues that have to be addressed in this country today. And just because we believe in small government as Republicans doesn't we mean that we believe in no government and that we have no opportunity to address the issues that are out there. We just need to be creative in how we do it. So let's bring people to the table. Let's create a table and then let's bring people to it and have some hard conversations that are frankly not being had in Congress right now. Right. It's not just not engaging. It is divisiveness yeah. and anger like you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. How do you bring people to the table? when all they do is say bad things about one another. Mm-hmm. And why do you want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, I, you have to start You have to start somewhere, right? And understanding that, look, as a member of the House of Representatives, you can't choose your colleagues. You just can't. I mean, in, in most work situations, you can't choose your colleagues. But particularly in the House of Representatives, you're stuck with whoever gets voted in from other states. And you're stuck with whoever's in the majority at any given point in time. And if you can only work when your party in the majority, then maybe you're not very good at the job because that's not how the job works, right? So understanding the people who were there, you know, when I was in D.C., so I I did grad school in D.C., and then I worked on the Senate Finance Committee for a little while as as a clerk when Orrin Hatch was uh, chair. And they talked about how, you know, back, back in the day, right, members of Congress would actually room together because they couldn't afford big, fancy apartments or houses in Washington and it broke down the barriers between parties because you had members from different parties who would bunk together and they knew each other they engaged together they worked together and it allowed for better communication and better dialogue so somehow we've got to break out of the entrenchment that we've got right now and engage with people who think differently from us on our own committees right whatever committee you're on you've got to be able to work with the other people on that committee whether or not you like them and uh, as well as in congress as a whole so as you look at that before we uh, go to our first commercial break aaron uh have you been able to spot anything in congress i know we we tend to focus on all the things that aren't happening in congress some things are happening back there have you identified anything that you see okay there's there's a model or there's a caucus or there's a group that's getting something done or a bipartisan effort that did work uh, that you've been able to spot and say okay i can i can play that model 
Mm. You know, I look at um, John Curtis, right, representative from the 3rd District, and I really appreciate the role he has taken with the Conservative Climate Caucus because climate in particular, and, and, you know, we can talk about this um, as a policy issue, but climate is one area where Republicans are not doing a very good job right now. We care a lot about our environment. We are actually very good stewards of our environment, but we're not talking about it. And we're not really going out there and and engaging in solutions that could address climate, natural resources, energy, all sorts of things. And that's one of the issues that young voters in particular care a lot about. So I look at someone like John Curtis and I say, okay, here's a guy who went back to Washington and founded the Conservative Climate Caucus, which nobody's talking about, even went so far as to go to Glasgow with the uh, international summit that they had there. Who, what other Republicans are actually there, right? But he's starting a conversation that needs to be had on the Republican side, and I really appreciate that. If you're just joining us, we're having our candidate conversation for Utah's 2nd Congressional District. We're really pleased to have Aaron Ryder joining us in studio. We're going to go ahead and step aside for a quick commercial break. Much more to come. Stay with us here on KSL News Radio. We'll be right back. Decision 2022, a candidate conversation with Aaron Ryder on KSL News Radio. And thank you for joining us on this conversation. Maria Shaleos, Boyd Matheson with you. And of course, you're joined by Aaron Ryder. Um, Aaron, with 10 mass shootings over the weekend, at last count, at least a dozen dead, 60 injured, we can't avoid the conversation about gun reform. Before we dig into that, though, New York's governor this afternoon has passed a series of bills on gun reform. And let's listen to what she had to say. This is a crisis the scale of which requires a national response at the federal level and from each and every state. But here in New York, we don't wait. We lead. It's unusual to see a state lead on gun reform. What do you believe needs to be done at the national level? The president has called for an outright ban on assault weapons. How do you feel? Yeah, you know, I have thought a lot about this issue over the last couple of weeks because you're right. This is something that, uh, you know, we cannot avoid this conversation. I mean, frankly, we should have had this conversation after Columbine. We should not still be having this conversation. And I thought a lot about this because I want to make sure that whatever approach I take to this is an approach that's going to last, right? Because I think we can all agree that the last thing we want to see is another shooting like this. We, we cannot continue down this path. And frankly, I've been frustrated that a lot of our Republican uh, leaders, including Representative Stewart, are just avoiding the conversation. They just won't engage. And uh, the issue, I mean, the reality is that the issue is complex and it requires a complex solution. So the way I look at this, we've got a couple different things. Let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about school security. Those are great. We need them. They're long-term solutions and they're solutions, you know, that we need to look at in a long-term sense in the short term though and just as crucial is the conversation about guns themselves we cannot avoid this and we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be afraid to engage in this conversation we can have a conversation about guns that does not threaten the existence of the second amendment so looking at this you know i have decided look we have we have got to do something and i think that we can there's some common sense things that we can do for example I would support increasing the age limit on assault weapons. I also think we need to start by defining assault weapons. What is it actually, what is an assault weapon and how are we going to classify that? But let's increase the age limit. You have to be 21 to, now you have to be 21 to smoke tobacco. You have to be 21 to drink. You have to be, what, 25 to rent a car. I think it's reasonable to increase the age limit on something like an assault, assault weapon. Second, 
something like mandatory waiting periods. We can do that, right? We already have waiting periods on other types of weapons and accessories. No reason why we couldn't do that here. Again, it doesn't threaten the existence of the Second Amendment, but both of those things could have had an impact on several of the instances that we've seen over the last couple of weeks. And that's what I'm looking for, right? What are things that are going to actually make a difference here? And those things could make a difference. Red flag laws. Let's talk about it, right? A lot of that probably should happen at the state level, but let's get maybe some, maybe we need some national standards in place for that. I think that uh, Joe Manchin actually talked about that today, right? So let's talk about it. They should be narrowly tailored. We need to make sure that we're not expanding outside the reach of what we need here, but red flag laws for, um, you know, crimes, violent crimes, especially violent crimes involving firearms. Yeah, we should have that conversation. Even background checks, right? It's complex. It's very difficult to... Um, to really make meaningful change on background checks. But to the extent we can, let's do it. So as, as you look at your role as a member of Congress, and I won't, I won't give you a hypothetical over a bill that doesn't exist yet, uh, although I usually point out that regularly members vote on things they haven't read yet. Uh, but one of the things that struck me over the weekend is there was a group of 21 Democrats in the House of Representatives who sent a letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi begging the speaker not to do a big all-encompassing thousand page bill uh, with all of these things put into one that everyone knows is never going to pass mm-hmm. uh, but encourage the speaker to to break them into eight very precision very targeted things if you were on the floor of the house what is the first if you if you had the chance to offer the bill uh where would where would you start and what kind of coalition would you look to build yeah i think they're i think they're absolutely right on that in order for meaningful legislation to happen on this, you have to have Republicans and Democrats at the table on this. And in order to build that kind of coalition, it has to be, you cannot have an all-encompassing bill here. You, you just can't. So I think for, you know, for me, if I were on the floor of the House, I'd start with things like increasing the age limit and, uh, and requiring waiting periods. Uh, and, you know, we, d- again, define the type of, of weapon or firearm they're going after, but increasing age limits and, um, imposing waiting periods let's start there right and yeah I, I think that can build the coalition you need to get that passed and again those two things could have had a real impact on what we've seen in the last few weeks i think many americans are having a hard time getting their heads around what is happening in the nation with all mm-hmm. of these mass shootings but it seems like every time we have a shooting instead of really getting down and discussing the issues what happens is one side suddenly is pitted against the other and trying to make trying to clearly define where they stand but that eliminates the chance for any sort of compromise Mm -hmm. how do we change that that entire bit of rhetoric that happens every time there's a shooting I, i know i just watch our texters and every time there's a shooting they you know you can see which side i can tell you immediately which whether someone's a republican or democrat Mm -hmm. from the things that they text me yeah you know i think a lot of this is uh we have to start with realistic expectations about what we can do and what we can't do right governing is complicated you know governing is a group affair and it involves lots of people and that involves necessary and important compromise and discussion about things my approach to this over the last couple of weeks to these issues in general is that anything and everything should be on the table right now again we should not be afraid to have these conversations and you know back to senator sass's comment right people jump on 
on board with this and they want to instantly define the issue. I think that's wrong because if you instantly define an issue, you don't leave any room to understand the issue. And if you don't understand the issue, you, how can you possibly create meaningful legislation that will address the issue? You have to have that understanding first. And so many of our representatives just jump right in with preconceived notions of how they want to see something happen. And instead, we should be taking the time to sit back and listen and hear people out and, and research the different components of all of, of whatever, you know, something like this, right? And then go forward with our ideas. And we're, we're just, all of the incentives are contrary to that, right? And so that's where you get Representative Stewart, who says, I only support increasing security in schools. Well, that's myopic. It's, it's not, again, it's not acknowledging that there could be a much more complicated issue here. But we have to get representatives who are willing to step back from that immediacy and say, I want to understand first and react second. Uh, and as we look at that uh, in terms of how you do get that, get people to suspend judgment for a moment and step back, take some of that uh, conversation in, uh, what's the proper role in terms of government, in terms of uh, community, family, the mental health component that you mentioned earlier? How should we be navigating that part of the conversation? Sometimes people will say that and immediately you're, you're discarded because that's not the problem, it's the guns. Uh, and again, we're at those polar opposites. But how do we have a more inclusive conversation uh, in terms of the proper role of government in this? Yeah, I think you've got to start by finding the common ground, right? The Pew Research um, Center did a, a study, or I, I went to an event in D.C. several years, a few years ago, where they were talking about integrity in Washington, and they talked about how um, how people are much more aligned on a lot of these issues than we give each other credit for. So let's start by finding common ground, and I think in this case, the common ground is pretty clear. Nobody wants to see a shooting like this happen at all, ever. I don't think anybody would, you know, no one out there says, yeah, that's totally fine and I don't really care. No one is saying that, right? So that's our common ground. Let's start there. And then let's be open to figuring, again, you have to understand what is it that's going on in these in these cases. Politico just came out and talked about a study that was just released on kind of the what what leads someone to a, a situation like this, right? And there are indicators now that these are essentially suicides, right? And we've got isolation, loneliness, childhood trauma, all sorts of things that are putting a person in a position where they feel like this is their out. And so, again, we have to have short-term and long-term solutions to address this. This is not going to be solved by one single issue. So to have either side say, no, your idea is invalid because it's not what I want to hear is closing down a very significant part of the, of the dialogue. And do we really want every state taking action on their own and piecemealing what we have throughout the country? And is that constitutional? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this, I mean, <laughs> a lot of it is going to be federal, especially on the mental health side, right? I'm sorry, a lot of it's going to be state run, especially on the mental health side. I don't know that we want the federal government stepping in and saying, this is how you should run mental health in general. You know, a lot of that is a community endeavor. And right. I was talking more endeavors. about the, the gun reform legislation mm -hmm. that went passed through New York today. Yeah. And, you know, you do have a problem where if you have, you know, so I'm an attorney and one of the things that uh, can run afoul of the Constitution is when you have a patchwork of laws that start to conflict. And that's how cases often end up at the Supreme Court, because you have these different conflicting regulations that start to cause all sorts of problems. And uh, often that's when the federal government needs to step in to create one 
particular framework. Are we at that point with guns? Potentially, right? And we do have some federal requirements for guns. It's probably not unreasonable to have something like a minimum age requirement or waiting periods on certain kinds of things. Um, you know, that would be narrowly tailored, right? The question would be how narrowly, it has to be narrowly tailored to address the issue that you're trying to, to discuss here. Because that's how you don't run afoul of the Constitution, right? You've got to keep it narrowly tailored to that issue. So as long as it is narrowly tailored, I think there are some things the federal government could do, but a lot of it probably will continue to be a state a state-run issue, in which case state legislatures have to be willing to engage with this. All right, if you're just joining us, we are having our candidate conversation in the 2nd Congressional District. I'm Boyd Matheson with Maria Chaleos and Aaron Ryder in studio with us, a candidate in the 2nd Congressional. We'll step aside for bottom of the hour news. Much more to come here on Insights, not Insights Sources, just KSL News Radio. We'll be right back. <laughs> This hour, it's Decision 2022, a candidate conversation. Joining us is Republican challenger for Utah's 2nd District House seat, Aaron Ryder. Our hosts are Boyd Matheson and Maria Chaleos on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160 AM. Welcome back to our candidate conversation. Really pleased to have Aaron Ryder in studio with Maria Chaleo and Chaleos and I. I can't say that today, it's Maria. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're going to get right I know you back know my name. In. It's fine. Right back into the conversation because we have a lot of ground to cover before we get to the end of the program here and of course the thing that's on the minds of most utahns especially in the second congressional district uh, is the economy looking at inflation the cost at the grocery store and at the pump uh, is impacting everyone and of course there's a lot of blame to go around a lot of finger pointing and placing blame uh, i had a really interesting conversation uh, with uh, brian Riedel from the manhattan institute who talked about how little control presidents actually have over the economy and how much congress can actually influence it in, in terms of debt and deficit spending let's take a listen if you go on social media you'll see these little memes that say we have higher deficits under this president than that president and it's really misleading when you take a look at how little of the budget deficit the president can control. Extremely little. Um, and that's why I prefer to measure by legislation rather than overall deficit. So as we look at that, Aaron, it, it is easy to say, well, well, President Trump did this and President Obama spent that. And, and it's easy to, to get into the meme battle uh, and the chart battle. Uh, but when it comes to being a member of Congress, uh, what is the proper battle uh, and what is the right conversation we should be happen having in terms of things that might actually impact, uh, particularly inflation? Yeah. You know, this is, a, this is an interesting one. And I, and I think that Brian is absolutely right on this because according to the Constitution, Article 1 of the Constitution gives Congress control over government spending. That is Congress's job, to control the purse. And so it's true. The White House has very little control over this. And, you know, we're we all get very frustrated with what's happening in Washington, but here's the thing, right? We all look at the White House and say, we've got to get a new president in there. We've got to get a new president. But we're not looking at the right area to change. Yes, the White House, yes, it's important to, you know, vote people into the White House, but if Congress isn't changing, then we can't expect any sort of meaningful change on a policy level, because that is Congress's job. And this Congress really hasn't changed very much for the last, I don't know, decade. And so many of the people who are there, you know, I mean, it's, it's a running joke how, you know, the age of some of our members of Congress and how out of touch they are and the career politician, etc. And that is a huge problem. So when you look at 
are spending over time, it's re- it really isn't the White House that's driving it. The White House certainly has an agenda that they try to promote, and they but they have to work with Congress to get any of it passed. And so if government spending is going up, then that's on Congress, right? And even last week, you know, Representative Stewart talked about how when he was first in office, spending started going down. Well, that's great, but that was, I don't know, eight years ago, and spending has only gone up ever since, right? And he sits on the Appropriations Committee, which is the committee that's in charge of allocating how funds are spent. So when we talk about pork barrel spending, when we talk about, you know, special interests and all sorts of things, we're seeing very clearly how the inability to get anything done in Congress has very, very real economic effects on what's going on here. And we're coming out of COVID where we had an enormous amounts of government spending for COVID. Some of that was probably appropriate, but a lot of it probably wasn't. And now we're dealing with consequences. So what do you believe the first step should be by Congress to get these things back on the right track? Yeah. Well, first of all, we have to stop outspending our spending. We just have to. Um, it's not It's not working, and uh, we are paying the consequences as a result. Right now, I actually think there's real opportunity for meaningful legislation on this because nobody wants to think that China holds our debt, right? This is not a good time for China, for us to be under China's thumb. That creates opportunity for us to say, okay, then if we don't want to have that debt outstanding, we're going to have to have some hard conversations about how we spend our money and where things come from. That means we're going to have to be creative. It's going to mean we're going to have to decide, you know, where is money allocated and how can we still address issues without spending, right? Because that's one of the things that Republicans get in trouble for. They say, well, we can't spend, we can't spend. And yet there are all these issues that do need to be addressed somehow. So it can't be an all or nothing, right? We have to find a way to do both, to address the issue and to reduce our spending. Um, So we have to start there. And we have, you know, maybe that means we have to have regular audits of our budget. Maybe that means that we need to have a budget that is fixed at the beginning of each Congress going forward. Maybe that means that we need to be realistic about what Congress can pay for at any given time. You know, I mean, again, I'm a millennial. My whole life I have heard, don't rely on Social Security, don't rely on Medicare and some of these other government things because they may not be around by the time you get there. And that really concerns me because, again, the people making these decisions and voting on these issues may not be around to see the consequences of them. But I I will. My generation will. Yeah. So as you're looking at that, uh, you know, it's one thing to, to yell the shouting and the talking points at your your enemies or the other side when it comes to spending. It seems like everyone gets fiscally responsible when they're out of power. Yes. Uh, when the other side uh, has control of Congress and the White House. Uh, and, and yet it, that often becomes the real challenge point for members of Congress across the spectrum uh, when they vote no against a spending bill that's proposed by their own party. Uh, how do you attack that or how do you go about that as a member of Congress uh, that sometimes the tougher conversation is not with the other side, but it's it's with your side? Yeah, well, honestly, Boyd, that is the definition of integrity sometimes, right? It, being able to stand up to your own side. It's hard. It's not easy. And I mean, let's be realistic. Sometimes you have to know how to play the politics in Washington if you want to get things done. And that requires a little bit of give and take. I think we're all realistic about that. But... You know, it may, and so how do you address this, right? This is this is a really complicated issue that a lot of people just don't want to deal with. But again, I think we have to be willing to have hard conversations. Everybody loves to get money for their state, their district, whatever it is. Everybody loves to go in there and, well, if so-and-so is doing it, I'm going to do it too. That's a race to the bottom because there's no way to curb spending, right? Like, like you said, we can't go out there 
and say government spending is bad and you know when democrats are in charge oh the spending goes up so much and yet we're throwing in our own special interest requests all the time it also doesn't mean you have to necessarily shut down the government every time you don't like what you know the bills that are being passed but i think we have to somehow you know lead by example right find a way to get involved in the conversation get a seat at the table and be realistic about what we should be spending Right. We have just a minute before we take a break, but I just have to ask you, since we're on the topic of money, I did read in the headlines a few weeks back that you had raised more money than the incumbent, Chris Stewart, in this race. So I have to ask, how did you do that? <laughs> uh, with a lot of hard work. Um, it, you know, I think it just speaks to the fact that uh, this is a vulnerable seat and that people are unhappy and they're ready for change because all of our money has come from individuals. We have no money from special interests. And the vast majority of that money comes from within the state of Utah. I think the only money that has come from out of state is from people who know me personally from other areas of my life. So the fact that we can raise more money, I mean, we nearly doubled the number of individual contributions that came in compared to Chris Stewart's campaign. And I think roughly 50% of his money comes from special interest group interest groups and a lot of it comes from outside the state so the fact that that many people you know and there are limits on how much you can contribute right this isn't all coming from one person this is not coming out of my own pocket these are coming from individuals within the state of utah at all ranges of dollar amounts saying we are ready for something different all right we're going to step aside for one last commercial break when we come back we'll conclude our conversation with second congressional candidate Aaron Ryder here on KSL News Radio part of our special coverage we'll be right back Decision 2022 a candidate conversation with Aaron Ryder on KSL News Radio it is Decision 2022 with the primary election coming up on June 28th. We're having a candidate conversation for the 2nd Congressional District with Aaron Ryder, Maria Chaleos. I was going to say that 27... You just don't want... You want my name to be Malia today. And that's okay. I'll be Malia today. 27 ways to say Maria Chaleos today on KSL News Radio. But we are uh, really pleased to have Aaron Ryder joining us in studio today as we have this conversation coming down the home stretch. Four weeks to go until primary election day. And we want to spend this last segment uh getting into some of the the pieces in terms of how you go about uh, this role as being uh, a member of congress uh, how you make decisions how you uh, approach the job and so i want to start with kind of a broader brush question in terms of uh, what you see as the role proper role of the federal government yeah well i am a republican for a reason and uh, one of those is that i do value the role of small government i do think that decisions are usually best made at the community level because the people in that community often know the issues better than anybody else and they know what it takes to solve those you also have just less bureaucracy less red tape when you're dealing at a local level as opposed to a federal level so generally speaking i think that you know issues should remain at the local and state levels now that being said right the federal government does have a role to play and and small government doesn't mean no government it just means smart government and the founders knew that, right? When they first started out and they built, they wrote the Articles of Confederation, it wasn't strong enough and the country was at risk as a result. So then they came back and wrote the Constitution, recognizing that they needed to grant certain kinds of authority to the federal government that would allow the country to function as a country. And, you know, I've had some people say, look, we don't, you know, we don't necessarily want representatives who 
write lots of laws. Well, here's the thing, right? The country, is, we're still in this American experiment, and the country still needs to function. And laws can, you know, writing legislation can have a variety of impacts, including deregulation, including cleaning up messes that were made by previous Congresses, and all sorts of things. But if we elect a whole bunch of people to Congress who don't do anything, then the country suffers because the country is constantly changing and evolving and moving and progressing forward. And Congress... Congress's role is to keep pace with that in very specific enumerated ways as stated in the Constitution. So my question is, we talked about how divisive things become in Congress. Uh, many Americans are just exhausted with politics. Mm-hmm. That You're in a primary race and not as many people vote. So why, explain for folks why it's important for them to get out and vote. vote. Why, how are they going to make a difference when they're so exhausted and they think their representatives aren't listening to them? Yeah. You know, the other night I uh, went to an event. A friend of mine was very concerned about how to get involved civically. And so he brought together a few different people who were involved in various capacities, various organizations, to just talk about civic engagement in general. And he asked me to come and talk about running for office and, and just getting involved in politics, which I thought was great. And there were a whole bunch of people there who were just interested in how do I make change in my community. And a lot of people stay away from politics because it's the topic we don't want to discuss, right? You never discuss politics and religion, right? Um, and it's it's often very overwhelming. You look at something like inflation and it feels so overwhelming and so big. How do you even begin to address an issue like that? Well, you've got to have the right people in there. That's the point of a representative government is you find people who can represent your interests and then you they you send them back to Washington to engage in those hard conversations. But it has to be two-way communication, right? So if you aren't getting what you need out of your representation, your representative, then you've got to make a change. And the only way that change happens is if you show up and vote. And, you know, we talked earlier about how no one's happy with politics right now, right? The toxicity, the negativity, it's burning everybody out. Well, then show up because this is the year when when that change could happen. So one of the real crucial qualities, I think, in our leaders in the 21st century is this ability to have allies and alliances. You you have people you have to compete against on a host of things, and sometimes you need them uh, to be with you uh, on other issues. And so as you project forward, if you were to be in Congress, are there some people that you have uh, figured out or some caucuses that you've uh, looked at where you can say, okay, there's maybe there's a group on the left or there's an individual member of Congress uh, that I could see as an ally on a particular issue and uh, within the Republican Party as well. uh, Have you identified some members that you say, okay, there's someone I want to make sure I've got a relationship and an an alliance with uh, so that you can navigate all of this uh, stuff as you actually try to get something done? Yeah. There are so many committees and organizations and and caucuses and different things in Washington. I think some of that depends on the roles that uh, you you play on your various committees, right? But the things that I want to, the things that interest me most are things that can benefit this district in particular. District 2 has some very unique assets to it that could position it to be a real leader in the country. You know, it's the fastest growing district in the fastest growing state in the country. And that has a real you know, they could be a real key player. We could be a real key player in Washington if we had the right kind of representation there. So I look at, you know, things like energy. There are a lot of energy resources in um, the second district. You know, we've got geothermal, we've got solar, we've got wind, we've got all sorts of things in the second district. And energy is a resource we need to talk about right now. I'd love to be involved in those conversations. You know, even appropriations, I'll happily take 
over Representative Stewart's seat on appropriations. I would not be upset about that, right? <laughs> Let's have that conversation about where we're spending our money and uh, and how things are being allocated. So I look at that, um, even something like immigration. You know, immigration is a mess right now. We all know it. Let's get in there and let's have some, you know, let's build some coalitions around there. So those are, are you know, kind of groups that I would look at that are tied to interests that I have right now. As far as people, you know, I, I've been impressed with what I've seen coming out of uh, Representative Curtis and Representative Moore here in this state. Representative Moore is an interesting one. He, you know, as a freshman, he went in and he's already passed a bill and he's gotten leadership positions in uh, in one year in, in office. That's relatively significant and indicates what you can do as a freshman if, um, you know, if you go in there with the right, right mentality. So I think the federal delegation in Utah could be a real force in Washington and especially in the Republican Party. I think that Republicans around the country could look to Utah Republicans as a bellwether. There have been interesting conversations on Utah Republicans in general, and we could play a really significant role as a delegation in Washington in shaping and driving the party forward. Anyone who was in downtown Salt Lake City over the weekend knows there were thousands of people who gathered for the Pride celebrations. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, what can Congress do to promote inclusiveness, bring people together so that we don't see so many acts of rage over bigotry and racism? What what do you think the role of Congress is? Yeah, I think the way we talk about it is, first and foremost, it seems simple, but boy, it would sure change if we could change the tone with which we engage in certain conversations and the way we talk about people who are different from us. You know, we need to remember that the United States is a melting pot, and it was, I mean, that's one of the best things about America is the diversity in this country. District 2, I think, is one of the, is probably the most diverse district in the state of Utah because it includes all of West Valley City, which is incredibly diverse, a significant portion of Salt Lake County, and you have incredible growth happening in Tooele, Tooele County, Washington County, Davis County, etc., which are all in the second district. We need to recognize that sometimes we make laws that allow, you know, we want people to live their best lives here. That's the point of the American dream. You come here and we are going to reward you for the effort that you put in. And we're going to take away roadblocks that would make it difficult for you to live your best life. Sometimes those laws, though, mean that we have to be okay with people living their lives in a way that might be different than our own. That's just choice, right? That's the, that's the beauty of this country. In fact, I think the French philosopher Voltaire once said, you know, I may not agree with what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it. We need to have that kind of mentality. Just because you say something or do something that I disagree with, I will still defend your right to do it because that's how we live in this country and I can learn from you because your experience is different than mine. I mean, being back east on the, on the, uh, in D.C. and I lived in Boston for a while, I was exposed to all kinds of different people from different countries, from different um, places around this country and the things that I learned from them were incredible and had a very significant impact on my life. So as we uh, round out our hour, as we uh, wrap things up, uh, as you have gone through this process, uh, all the twists and turns and ups and downs of a, of a campaign. Uh, it is not for the faint of heart, uh, to be sure. Uh, what, what have you learned and what will make all of this worthwhile regardless of outcome uh, on June 28th? Well, let's be very clear that I'm going to win on June 28th, Boyd. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's the question. The question is regardless. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, very early on, somebody told me, they said, you need to find your North Star and you need to stick with it. 
no matter what, because that helps you cut through, you know, a lot of the stuff we were talking about at the beginning when you get swayed by, um, you know, the, the celebrity nature of being a politician. And that has been very true for me. You know, I, I did not leave, I did not need to run, right? I did not need to leave my job and go do this, but I saw a need and I saw something that was really bothering me and the future with the future of the party at stake, the future of the country at stake. I decided we cannot keep doing this and it's worth it to me to step in and show people that there's a better path forward. There's a different way of going about this. And if that at least starts the conversation, then that's, that's worth it. So what was that biggest thing that was bothering you? Oh, just all the toxicity and the just negativity. The, right. I, I, the fact that we can't get anything. I mean, I can go on and on and on, right? right. We can't get anything done. It's so toxic. It's so negative. Um, all we're doing is pointing fingers, especially in the Republican Party, right? We're, we're just, we become the party of no. And I'm tired of being the party of no. I want to be the party of ideas, creativity, resourcefulness, ingenuity. I want to get back to the party of Lincoln. The party that had the biggest, boldest idea since the founding of our country to get rid of slavery. We need that spirit back in our party again. All right, Darren Ryder, candidate for the second congressional district here in the state of Utah. You've been listening to KSL News Radio's special coverage, uh, candidate conversation for the second congressional district. Uh, Maria, a final thought as we wrap up today. I am just grateful that you were able to come and be in studio with us and have this conversation about things that are just so important to Utahns and to the nation. So thank you for that. And the most important thing of all for all of us, uh, June 28th is coming. Ballots uh, have been mailed uh, to residences around the state of Utah. And uh, it's your job to show up, sign up, and vote. That's the name of the game. If you want to have change, uh, it starts with each one of us individually. Aaron Ryder, thanks again for joining us for this special second congressional conversation today. Uh, you've been listening to KSL News Radio. I'm Boyd Matheson for Maria Chaleos. And uh, the great one, Jeff Kaplan, is up next. Stay with us on KSL.